Well, I said this morning that it was so good to be together, and I mean it. Today, more than any other Sunday, perhaps today just like any other Sunday. It was good to be together last night at the Winter Festival, and I know it was poignant, too, for many of you who were there, to see our children lighting candles together and to watch the sweet stories of hope and love, the songs of light returning out of darkness. Of course, this is what we do in religious community. We come together at times of great sadness, and we search for whatever light, whatever hope we can find. Friday was a bad day. The news of the shooting of children and teachers in Connecticut, the heartbreak, once again, of violence in our society. Violence that was thrown into high relief for us on Friday, but that is present every day in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our policies, and our culture. For many of us, that news that came on Friday was almost more than we could bear. We wept, and we held each other and our children. We called someone up just to hear them answer hello. And today, we gather. We gather with plans laid out for us, with a hope for being together in a way that is both usual and out of the usual. This month, as Mary said, we have been exploring the theme of the divine within, and this week I'm slated to talk about earth-centered traditions. And I do want to talk about that. I do want to share with you some of what I've been studying and learning. Because for me, every time we drink deeply from the well of wisdom, our own or other people's, we come away more able to face what lies before us. But I also want to acknowledge that a day like Friday does what really any tragedy, any grief does for us. It makes us realize that no tradition, no wisdom, no theology or philosophy or way of life, no ideas are worth anything if they do not help us to live in a time of death. If they do not give us the courage to do what must be done, to heal a broken world, to heal our broken selves. So it is in that spirit that I speak to you today. All Friday afternoon and Saturday when I could barely look at a child without grief, a phrase ran through my head. It was a phrase from a poem by Wendell Berry, the farmer and writer and lover of the land. I'd like to share the poem with you. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light 
for a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Come into the piece of wild things. That phrase reminded me why I wanted to talk to you about earth centered traditions, why I think they have something to say to us. I come into the piece of wild things. We start, of course, with wondering what we mean by earth centered, what I mean. And as I did my study over this past few weeks, I realized that, of course, like any tradition, that tradition is a, a panoply, is many traditions in one. I, I spoke briefly about sort of an idea of original religion or natural religion, and that's a piece, I think, of what we're talking about, the kind of religion that was found all over the earth and is found there still, nature religion, pre-modern religion an experience of spirit in each thing and everything, all through the natural world. There's another strand of earth-centered religion, again, both ancient and new, that's centered around the goddess image. Sometimes it's called pagan or neo-pagan practice. And then there's another branch called creation spirituality, which comes out of many different traditions, but which again looks to the earth and to nature for the source of wisdom and solace. And then simply nature spirituality, the idea of finding your deepest connection in nature. And then too, there are earth-centered elements in all major world religions. I learned this week that the sound of Om 
you know that word if you do yoga. It's also a, or, or first, a, a sacred word, a sacred utterance within Hinduism. Well, om, you know, they say om is the sound you hear if you get far enough away from the earth. It's the sound of all the talking and all the barking and all the birds and all the air and all the water. If you just get far enough away, that's the sound you'll hear. So all of those traditions and many more encompass what we might call earth-centered or earth-inspired religion. That initial religion, original pre-modern religion, and you know, when you're talking about religion, modern is like kind of a long time. So we're talking about pre-1600 BCE, so that's what, about 3,700 years ago? Yeah. So pre-modern, Karen Armstrong in her book, The Great Transformation, in which she mostly talks about what came after, writes about the people of that time, where she writes, people usually experienced the sacred as an imminent, imminent, you know that word, it means close, right here, right now, presence in the world around them and within themselves. Some believed that gods, men, women, animals, plants, insects, and rocks all shared the same divine life. Armstrong talks about how every project in those times was begun with worship and sacrifice, with a ritual, as she writes, to give their fragile mortal activity an infusion of divine strength. Nothing could endure if it were not animated or endowed with a soul in this way. Goddess worship in the same way can be seen as an early religion and has been reclaimed Some of you might even have read the seminal work on that religion, Spiral Dance, by Starhawk, or read poems or writings of Starhawk. She writes about her experience with goddess religion in what she calls the craft. In the craft, Starhawk writes, we do not believe in the goddess. We connect with her through the moon, the stars, the earth, through trees, animals, through other human beings, through ourselves. She is here. She is within us all. She is the full circle, earth, air, fire, water, and essence, body, mind, spirit, emotions, change. And then Matthew Fox writes about creation spirituality in his book of that name. Matthew Fox writes, all creation is a trace, a footprint, an offspring of the Godhead. Creation is the passing by of divinity in the form of isness. Isn't that great? Isness. It is sacred. You can imagine, I think, why I thought earth-centered traditions might have something to say about the divine within. The way that each of these traditions see the sacred as, as right there, right within all of us and each of us. Matthew Fox sees creation spirituality, which he comes to from his own Christian heritage, as part of that original religion. He writes, all these peoples had cosmology as the basis of their worship, prayer, economics, politics, and morality. All of them honored the artist in all persons. All expected the divine to burst out of any place at any time. To see the world this way is to be creation-centered. 
the thing that resonates for me in all these articulations of Earth-centered tradition is the coming together of the sacred and the secular. The rejection, really, of the idea that there are two different realms. One realm that you can only get to in a church or in a synagogue or in a place of worship, and another that's outside, that's everything else. But the idea instead that there's one place, one isness, that the sacred, the holy, as it says in the quote above the stage, is available at any moment. That realization is, I think, a gift of tragedy as well. Some of you may have seen the quote that's been um, going around Facebook and other places from Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is our Sunday School director, Peggy Gates's favorite go-to person to help children in times of trauma. He was really, really quite, quite good at knowing how to reach out to children and to adults, too, I think. And the Mr. Rogers quote says that when a child or an adult is looking at something upsetting on the news, that they should look for the helpers. Always look for the helpers in that image you see. The stories of those helpers this week, just even the sight of them on the news, but then the stories, if that is not the sacred, if that is not the holy made manifest, then I don't know what is. It requires no power outside of our shared life, our shared love. You can see that it is hard for me to speak of this. You know, when I first studied preaching, I was taught that a preacher should never talk about something hard in their own lives until they had processed it and healed from it and could talk about it from a place of safety. And that is good advice, actually. It's, it's good advice. Almost all of the time. But I never want to feel safe talking about the killing of children. I never want to feel safe talking about the violence we allow in our society. And there, too, I find a resonance with what I have been studying this week. Nature religions have a deep acknowledgement of the profound unsafety in the world. There is no perfectly benevolent God guiding the world always toward the good, but instead a sense of the totality of nature, the totality of the world and of who we are, beautiful, terrifying. Gerald May, in his book, The Wisdom of the Wilderness, which I recommend highly, he speaks about being by himself in nature in a period of his life where being in total solitude was important to him. And about the experience, then, of pure fear. And of realizing that fear is a real and a deep and a true thing. May had been a psychiatrist for his adult career, teaching people to control emotions and to cope. As he writes it, his experiences in nature awoke what was waiting in him. Let me never cope again, he wrote. So what do we do when the world offers that fear to us, when it offers, when we look around, terror and grief? 
Every religious tradition, every way of life calls us to mend what we find broken. Last week, Mary spoke so beautifully about Judaism and about the concept of tikkun olam, the repair of the world. And nature religion, too, calls deeply to that because it names our oneness with all that is. Humanism, you know, is sometimes accused of being myopic, of seeing only humanity, only the human. And I think that that's been a fair charge over the years. And so with the wisdom of nature religion, with our own experiences in nature, we begin to see, I think, that we are connected not just to other people, but to all things. Here's how Gerald May puts it in The Wisdom of Wilderness. He's speaking about our society now. We separate ourselves from wildness, make it an object at best, an adversary at worst, a thing to be conquered and subjugated. As a result, we have done much damage to the earth and to ourselves. Many cultures experience no such estrangement. Instead, people of such cultures often reflect a sense of kinship, even union, with the earth and its creatures, and a sense of harmony within themselves. I wonder if we might have been like that too long ago. If so, what happened to make us feel so separate? May asks that question and he offers his answer, the answer that he found out in the wilderness. That our coming together, the disillusion of that separateness that he laments, the union of us with all the world calls us into greater accountability for all things. That the connectedness of the world calls to us even more deeply to heal it where it is broken. Matthew Fox writes, creation spirituality is a movement when it awakens people and their slumbering moral outrage at the folly of our race and offers a creative outlet for the justified anger and the pent-up frustration of ordinary folks. There is a need in this moment for anger, I think, a need to organize, a need to create a movement. And the truth is, in America, in this society itself, we will find our inspiration in many places. Some from their sense of nature, some from their sense of the love of God, some from their ethical frameworks and the values by which they live their lives. If nothing else, I hope Friday will wake us up, all of us, to the society that we have allowed to happen, to how we care for the vulnerable of every kind, the children and the caretakers and those who are deeply lost to the world. And the vulnerable around us to the environment that we create, the way that the violence we do to the earth echoes the violence we do to each other. Let us wake up. And what of the peace of the wild things that Barry promised in his poem? Gerald May calls this piece, I love the way he calls it, he calls it the power of the slowing. 
He talks about the first time he went out into the wilderness by himself with lists of camping gear and the pup tent and the sterno and the stove and he had to, and the bears were going to come so he had to put the food up. Lists of everything he needed to bring and everything he had to do and he describes driving into this campsite in the middle of nowhere with his 4 by 4 which he was really proud of, proud of having a 4 by 4 um, to, to off-road it to this remote part and he drives in and parks the car or the truck, I guess, parks the truck, and he gets ready to start on the first of his list and set up his tent and opens the door, and the power of the slowing calls to him. And he thinks, I don't need to set the tent up yet. I don't need to set up the camp stove yet. And he sits there that first moment in the wilderness half in and half out of his car, just sits there, caught by the power of the slowing. It turns out he remembered the pumped pup tent and remembered the sterno and remembered the stove, but forgot his sleeping bag. (laughs) And the power of the slowing says, you have a blanket. It'll be all right. Over the course of that night and the years that May spent taking these solitary journeys out into the wild, into the wilderness, he comes to experience the sense of union with all that is. That sense of union that I think earth-centered traditions, and at their heart, the mystical part of every tradition invites us to experience. Our theme is called The Divine Within, but you know, as I think about this week and what I have been learning, I I might say better the all within. In an earth-centered tradition, the everything within, how all of it is part of us and we are part of it. The power of the slowing. The power of the slowing tells us that despite the unsafety, despite the fear, with the grief, that we find in the world, in nature, a rest for our soul, a balm. Many of you have spoken about that here, about your time on a boat or in the woods, your time away with no screens and no phones and no lists. The power of the slowing, the call to simply be. There is a welcoming in of all that is and the acknowledgement that the all that is is so much bigger than we can imagine, offering us both deep sadness and deep joy. Gifts we cannot yet see, gifts we may help create, and gifts that are simply there, free for the taking, if we notice them. The peace of wild things. You know, we cannot stay there. Listen closely to Barry's words. We must come back to each other, back to the work of repairing the world. When we are strong enough, when we are slowed enough, when we are able.
I read again for you these words that have meant something to me in the last day. May the peace of wild things find you wherever you are. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. And I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free.